The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Do so. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. If you're here with us or you're joining us online, welcome as we begin this uh, new series. Uh, Exodus is near the front of your Bible. It's that second book uh, there, Genesis. If you open up to like page 1 and there will be 50 or so pages likely, and then you'll find the book of Exodus there. And uh, I want to encourage you to leave a bookmark in there. Mine's just a you know, piece of paper that I keep in this. Maybe you have a fancier Bible than mine, and you have a, you know, those little like velvet bookmark things. Anybody got those in their Bible? Or are they velvet or ribbon or lace or whatever they are? Um, you'll want to leave a bookmark here because we're going to be journeying through uh, this book uh, this summer, at least the first 15 chapters uh, this summer. Um, and so you won't, just so you can find your place, you'll want to do that there. Now, everybody loves a good story, don't they? I mean, who in here uh, hates stories? Like, no, we all love stories, right? Kids, uh, they, they, uh, their imaginations are held captive by the thrilling tales of princesses and pirates, right? We, are, we, we sit spellbound by movies whose storylines relate to life and, and grip our emotions, right? And all the wives, they want, your, they want their husbands to sit with them and watch uh, these movies and stories of love and drama. And yes, husbands, we can love our wives as we sit next to them through chick flicks and, and things. I'm sure you husbands are way better at that than I am, right? But we love a good story, don't we? And I'm willing to bet that most of us know the story of Exodus, at least in, in part. We've probably uh, heard the, the story of Moses in a burning bush. We've, we've uh, seen depictions of the Hebrews crossing the Red Sea where the waves are turned back and they cross through on dry land and then Pharaoh and all of his army and chariots are washed Away, And so whether you've seen that in the kids' movies like The Prince of Egypt or you've actually read the Word of God multiple times, you are uh, likely familiar with the story. But Exodus is more than just a thrilling story full of highs and lows and heroes and villains. The story of Exodus is the story of redemption. It's a story of deliverance from bondage and and into the presence of God. In the book of Exodus, it's both the revelation and demonstration of God's character and his power, of who he is and what he does. It is also the revelation and demonstration of humanity's bondage and the significant problems that plague our human existence. And it's because of this significance that a theme runs through the rest of Scripture from the Old Testament and back, referring to the entirety, really, of the events in Exodus to remember the Red Sea. Remember the Red Sea, referring to all of these events. And so David and the prophets and the New Testament writers themselves will take our minds and say, yeah, but remember what God did. Remember who God showed himself to be. And so the God of glory this morning and through this series has a similar message for us all. And really underneath Both the whole storyline of Exodus and particularly in chapter 1 is this theme. 
Everybody needs an exodus. Mark that down if you're taking notes, whether on your phone or in your own notebook, but you want to know this with certainty. Everybody needs an exodus. Everybody needs an exodus. The Israelites of some 3,500 years ago, they needed deliverance and they needed God's presence. And, and now we in New Braunfels in 2020 AD also need an exodus. And so let's turn our attention to these opening verses of Exodus 1. And I want to read the first seven verses for us. We're going to kind of read a passage and then work our way through it. And so listen to, uh, with me as I read Exodus 1, 1 through 7. It says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, this is God's word for God's people. And even as I read that, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, this isn't very thrilling at all. I could do, how many of us judge a book by that first paragraph? If somebody recommends a book and you read the first paragraph and it does, if it doesn't grip you, it's like, nope, on to the next book. Nobody's like that? Y'all have more perseverance, more endurance? Yeah, she's like that? Yeah, somebody? No, we can't judge a book, but more than just a genealogy and some crazy names that we'd likely never name our sons here, there's something phenomenal going on here. But these, these verses here in Exodus, you need to know where we're coming from and where we, where we are. This is, these verses really form a transition between the volumes. Okay, there's some continuity here from Genesis to Exodus. And so you may already know this, but just by way of reminder, don't forget that Exodus is volume two in a five volume set called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Right? Genesis, Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus, then what? Numbers and Deuteronomy form those first five books with one continuous story and one continuous author, the man Moses, who will be introduced to not long from now. And so Genesis obviously moves into Exodus. And so that's where the story is picking up with Jacob's sons here. And they're listed not in their birth order, but they are listed according to their maternal order or their mom. Jacob had a couple wives and some uh, their servants. And so they're grouped according to the sons of Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpah. But the story of Genesis then ends with this, uh, with this account of Jacob and his sons and, and Joseph's fall and rise, the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers and then he being sold into slavery and then rising to power as the second in command over all of Egypt and leading them through uh, years of plenty and years of famine. And we actually looked at that uh, back in summer 2017. I would encourage you, if you weren't here then, to go back and listen to those. One, read the book of Genesis, and even particularly the ending portion, Genesis 37 to 50. But you can find those on our website, a series called God Meant It for Good. And you will, if you do that, you will uh, be caught up here to this ongoing story of redemption. Now, we can't also forget that Moses is writing to the children of Israel that uh, would be in the book of Joshua. 
Okay? He is writing to those that have uh, gone on, uh, uh, who are the kids and, or the grandkids of the people that are living here in Exodus. And so as he writes to them, he is reminding them of these promises. He's reminding them of the events that took place here long before them. And so the book of Exodus here, here's our first point in these first seven verses is just this. It's forget not the promises of God. Forget not the promises of God. And so in the midst here of this, of this genealogies, of the things that kind of uh, you know, make us squirm a bit, uh, what is most important here is he is uh, referring them back. He's putting a marker before them and us to say, forget not the promises of God. Like I said, he lists out the, the, the sons of Jacob according to the maternal groupings. And then verse 6 gives us that, that marker there of Joseph dying, which if you look probably on the page before, you see the death of Joseph there uh, recounted. And so now we know where we are, but then it's verse 7 that is the key. And we can't overlook this. Maybe even as I read it, you were thinking to yourself, well, that's cool. He had lots of kids. Now, next, like, whoa, 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 hold on. Hold on. Not only were they fruitful and multiplied, but there is something else happening here. It is, it is a marker here telling us, reminding us that God is still at work faithfully fulfilling the promise that he made way back to their ancestors, Abraham. Do you remember the story of Genesis? Do you know the story of God's covenant with the man Abraham? Way back in, in Genesis 12, when he calls this man out of her and tells him to just leave his whole family, to make a journey without giving him hardly any sort of instructions. And he tells him and makes this promise, God does, in Genesis 12. Just listen to it here. He says in Genesis 12, verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that's quite a promise, right? If God just showed up and, and started making these uh, promises to you, you would be astounded. But he doesn't just leave it there. He's kind of, those are the general terms. And as, uh, as Abraham gets older, God begins to clarify and be more specific in his promise, so much so that uh, years later in Genesis 15, God reiterates the promise and says this. He says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. To which Abram responds, he's like, Yeah, well, I, I'm old, and my wife is old, and we've never had any kids. And so, how are you going to make a great nation when I don't have any to inherit this great blessing? To which then God responds in Genesis 15:5, He brings Abram outside, and he says, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Now, that's pretty incredible, right? The other night, Friday night, Aaron was here at uh, the, um, the women's equipping study, and I put my kids to bed, and uh, one, uh, Gemma was uh, uh, still awake, but Malachi was sleeping. It was 9 o'clock, and I woke them up to go to have a night swim in our backyard, a little blow-up pool and all that. One was really excited. The other, who was sleeping, was not excited. Um, <laughs> But we were laying out there, and I was trying to get him, like, this is cool, it's summertime, isn't that awesome? We do night swims. And I said, look up at the stars, and we began to count them and things. And you know as well as I do, you've looked at the stars. If you haven't, I encourage you to just go out tonight. 
God takes Abram in the same way and says, count him if you can. Obviously you can't. Then God says this. He says to him, so shall your offspring be. That's pretty incredible. And it says then, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I mean, that's faith, y'all. That's faith. When God says something impossible, when he makes these promises, you're like, yeah, I don't know how that's going to happen. That, that is not going to happen through my means, my effort. But, but Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the rest of Genesis then, up until we get to Exodus, the rest of Genesis is God faithfully uh, faithfully uh, preserving this people and and. and, and um, propelling, too many Ps there, propelling this covenant even when it's threatened. What's really interesting, and we, we don't have time to go there, you can read it uh, on your own this week, but after God makes these promises, the, 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 the Abram and his sinfulness just puts it in jeopardy over and over again. He, he follows the Lord and says, yes, and then he does something and he, and he sells off his wife. You're like, what, man? You just showed great faith and now you've just done something incredibly foolish. And over and over again, God continually comes through and it is God preserving this promise through the, uh, and despite the sinfulness of his people and the opposition of enemies. As Abimelech and Pharaoh and, and others come around and try to stop the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God being shown to God's people. And so with all of that as a backdrop, then we get to Exodus and and what Moses is telling us, what God is saying, he's saying, hey, forget not the promises of God. They are even in the midst, even though they're not in the promised land, they are in Goshen, in the land of, of Egypt. God is still working it out. And through these 70 people that came, they are being fruitful. They are increasing greatly. They are multiplying and growing exceedingly strong so that the land is filled with them. When you see those words, when you read this verse, let your, uh, let your heart be encouraged that God is still at work. They are experiencing God's faithfulness to multiply them and make them a great nation. But Moses knows, God knows, we know it. We're a forgetful people, aren't we? We're we're a forgetful people. Time goes by and we, we move on to other things. We treat the promises of God like a Facebook post that we just kind of scroll by and it's out of our memory within seconds. Times get, get tough, and, and then we forget all the evidence, the abundant evidence in our own life and in the life of people around us, in the life of human history. We forget all the evidence of God's goodness. A pandemic hits, and all we can see is what's changing. All we can see is what we're losing. We're trying to grab, uh, grab onto it so hard, and then we miss what God is really doing. The true work that he is doing in our heart, how he is bearing fruit in your life and the lives of others, how the church is continuing to multiply, how our faith is being strengthened even in the midst of it all. As a church, we can forget Jesus' promise to to the disciples, to us in Matthew 16, 18, to where he says, and I tell you, I, this is Jesus speaking, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a promise, y'all. The gates of hell, nor a pandemic, nor anything else can thwart the work that God is doing. And what God is doing among us is beyond us. 
What God is doing among us is beyond us. Let us not forget this. Even as we specifically, as we start a new series, as we get into the book of Exodus, let us not forget the rock-solid ground which we've stood upon the last six weeks. These promises that we put out before us, these promises of wisdom and peace and purpose and strength and significance, These promises that give us confidence about where we stand with the Lord, where we stand uh, in humanity, and it gives us the direction as to where we're going and how we're going to get there. And therefore, we have hope, and we can proceed with faith. We can proceed with faith, even when opposition arises, even when challenging times come, which is exactly how the story continues. We've just read the introductory part, and so let's see how the rest of Exodus goes. Join me in verse 8, and I want to read the next portion for us. It says this, Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is God's word for God's people. You know, in verse 7, the people of Israel are growing and things are growing great, right? But guess who notices in verse 8? The enemy, right? The enemy who, who maybe wasn't an enemy once upon a time, a new king rises. And now this is important because remember, Joseph was the second in command to Pharaoh or the king of Egypt. And now that Pharaoh has died. He's gone on. And now a new one has come who it turns out to be an enemy of the people of Israel. And so note this, y'all. Note this, that when we get serious about the Lord, the enemy gets serious about us. When we get serious about the Lord and we start living out our faith, when we start walking in the promises of God, when we start living on purpose for the Great Commission, when we start doing uh, what God has called us to do, the enemy then takes notice. So your enemy loves nothing more than lazy, ineffective believers. He doesn't have to, doesn't have to worry about it. But, but when we start living it out, when we get serious about our faith, when we start uh, praying, and when we start digging into the scripture, when we start uh, loving our neighbors, when we start uh, combating the forces of darkness, the enemy takes notice, starts to attack. And these attacks, church, these attacks are a reminder that God is at work. I want you to think about something here. Did you notice Was God mentioned in these first 14 verses? In the opening portion that I read and the second portion that I read, is God mentioned anywhere? He's not. He's absent, at least in in direct name. He's not given any credit. And it's at times like this, especially when things get hard, what do we ask? Where are you, God? Don't you see what's happening Don't you know what's going on in my life? Don't you see this? 
And church, let me just tell you, as a believer, even when it seems like God is absent, you can see him in the fulfillment of his promises. You can see him in the work that he is doing, and you can be sure that, that when oppression is happening, it is because God is at work. Oppression like this is as old as sin. It's been around since the very beginning. People have been using their power to gain the upper hand and, and oppress people from the very beginning. Since Cain killed Abel, this, is, this has been happening all across the world. And you know, in verse 9, what, what, is, what is the king of Egypt? What does Pharaoh fear from the Israels? He's, he fears that there'll be, be too many and what? Too mighty. He fears that, that because these people are different and they worship a different God and, and they have uh, this blessing that they are not experiencing, that they're going to join their enemies and then in turn overpower them. He's fearful. So what does he do in verse 11? He enslaves them all. He sets them to work building these two ancient cities. And how does it describe uh, their, uh, their enslavement? That they were great masters, that they had a great life and were provided for and you know, had places to live and meals? What words did you see there? What was, how is this described? They were what? They were ruthless, verse 13 says. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter without regard for their life whatsoever, so that they, again, ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And it's been the same story over and over, culture after culture. This is nothing new to the people in Exodus here and what we're experiencing in America is nothing new today. It's not a societal problem. It's not a political problem. It at its heart is a sin problem. As people uh, look to others as, as, as somebody who is a threat to them, instead of taking the time to get to know them and to love them and to see what is different. If we look to solutions other than God's solutions, we will get nowhere. And so these verses in God's sovereignty, they teach us uh, many lessons, some very specific lessons for us today and the things that are happening in our nation. What does this teach us? What can we take from these verses here? What can we make of the scripture of what is happening here and what is happening in our nation? Well, it teaches us first this, that hatred is distinctly evil and rooted in fear. If you're taking notes, write this down, that hatred is distinctly evil and it is rooted in fear. See, this, this oppression of people, this hatred towards others is a tactic of the devil and it has been so since the beginning. It has been what God has used to uh, pit people or person against purpose or person. And if history has shown us anything, that whenever God is on the move doing a good work, the devil stirs up ethnic hatred to try and stop it. When the, when the forces of the love of Christ, when the gospel is prevailing, what does the devil stir up? He stirs up this hatred for one another. And so we can be sure that God is on the move here among the Israelites. He's doing a good work even among us. See, what, what, what we have to realize here is that hatred from the Egyptians towards the Israelites, it already existed. 
Back in Genesis 43, we were told this as Joseph ate by himself. As his brothers came to visit him and they didn't yet know that it was their brother that was the one they were meeting. He had disguised himself, but he brought him in to have a meal. And it says this in in Genesis 43, 32, that they served Joseph by himself and then the brothers by themselves and then the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that was an abomination to the Egyptians. I mean, what do you call that? That's hatred, it's racism, it's evil. And it already existed, and now God is on the move doing something glorious in the book of Exodus that we are about to see. And so, of course, what does the enemy stir up? He stirs up this oppression. Years later, why? Because God is at work and the enemy hates it. And when the enemy hates things, he stirs up people to hate one another. And we can know, we can be encouraged. That's the weird thing, and, and maybe not weird, but the glorious thing in, in, in our understanding. That even in the worst of times, that, that must mean that God is on the move. That God is doing a good work among us. We understand what's happening in our world, and we, and we understand it from God's perspective, and so we grieve, but we don't fight back with the type of hatred and lashing out and fear and taking up the same weapons of our enemy. said so we take up the things of the Lord. And so what does this teach us? Well, first, like I said, hatred is distinctly evil. That is rooted in fear. And second is this, that diversity is a distinctly Christian value rooted in eternity. Diversity is a distinctly Christian value rooted in eternity. Why? Why do we say that? Why, why would anybody be compelled to love somebody who's different than themselves? Why? Because we as believers know that from our beginning, we are created in what? The image of God, every single one of us. It doesn't matter what image is reflected in the mirror. All of us are (laughs) created in the image of God. From before, (laughs) before we were even born, we come from common ancestors, all of us, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And even after he destroyed all the rest of humanity in the flood, then we all come from Noah's sons. All of us, we all can trace our genealogies back to this family. And so it is rooted in eternity. These ideals of diversity are rooted in where we've come from, our mission and our purpose for which we exist now. What did we see last week as Paul so ably preached the Great Commission? Now we are to make disciples of whom? All nations. All nations. And where are we going, beloved? What are we looking forward to in Revelation 7? the eternal worship of Christ with every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, diversity is a distinctly Christian value, something that we love and cling to. It's a gospel issue. And here's the solution, the third thing that these verses teach us, that love is a distinctly Christian solution that is rooted in the gospel. Love is a distinctly Christian solution rooted in the gospel and how we relate to one another. We proceed with love. How do we define love? We talk about this all the time. It's you before me. It's sacrifice. It's, It's unconditional. It is us saying, I love you and how we relate and even when we hurt one another. Love is what compels us to reconcile. Love is what calls us to forgive and to lay down our lives. Love is the the distinctly Christian solution that is more powerful than we give it credit to. You know, we say, well, what do we do in days like today? What do we do in the societal chaos that is around us and the rioting and the hatred that we see? Well, what our most powerful weapons are prayer and relating to one another in love. 
Those, those, aren't, those, those aren't just the, the things that we fall back on. We're like, well, that didn't work, and so we have to take up other arms. No, 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 church. If that is your attitude, you don't understand the power of prayer and the power of gospel-driven love. Gospel-driven love that invites people in. It wants to get to know people, and this is a gospel issue. And our response to these things, how we read a passage like this and understand what is happening and how we read our, uh, the, today's media and understand what is happening is it is through the lens of the gospel, of understanding that humans are corrupted by sin and bitter bondage, cor- corrupted to, and, and, and hating one another, hating God and hating our neighbor. That's why the two greatest commands are to love God and to love our neighbor. Because we were self-centered, stuck in our sin and couldn't do anything about it until Christ came with great mercy, with his love which he loved us and died. Offering the forgiveness that all of us need. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, a, a truth that I know you love. and Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe this morning, it's the, uh, this is a new message to you that you're realizing and you're seeing firsthand the ugliness of your own sin and the ugliness of humanity around us. And you're seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ and how he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he died the death, took the punishment that we were supposed to take so that we could walk in newness of life and, and walk in love towards the Lord and towards one another and be with him for eternity. Do you love that truth, church? Do you believe that it is the solution to all the world's problems? Pray that you do. Pray that you do. See, everybody needs an exodus. All of us need that story. All of us in bondage to sin. And Christ came to deliver us. And not just deliver us to set us on our own way, but giving us himself the promised presence of his Holy Spirit who lives in us. Love compelled him to do that. Love compels us to combat these problems that we see around us and in our own hearts, rooted in the gospel. And you know what? It is that faith that we need. It is that faith that propels us forward, which is precisely the picture that we get in the rest of the chapter It's what we get in these Hebrews, in these Israelites, or more specifically in these midwives. And of all things, God uses these midwives to teach us this final lesson here, to fear God and not man. Fear God and not man. This is something, it's nothing new, it's nothing maybe profound, but I hope you see the power of it. Let's pick the story back up here in verse 15. Here they've working ruthlessly as slaves. Verse 15 says this, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. If you have twin girls, these are some uh, noble names. Verse 16, here's instructions. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Underline that in your Bible. The midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's word for God's people. There's so much wrong in these verses, isn't there? Like how can you you read stuff like this and and it should choke you up? There's so much wrong here. This genocide or infanticide, then leading to the legalizing of homicide in verse 22. Do you see that? He commands all the people. You see the the chaos, the lawlessness. I don't know that our world has, in our nation, has seen the 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 vileness that is here. To where just if you see someone like it is your duty, it is the law to throw them in the river. Can you imagine like our local authorities commanding something like that? If you see somebody like this, a boy like that, throw him into the comal. It's horrid, isn't it? He's blinded by hatred and fear. No, no loving, no logical thinking is happening here. You know, like if you just like scale it back here, just as like for political reasons, you know, if you want to like, like take a political approach, someone could approach the king of uh, Egypt, the Pharaoh here and said, hey, well, this is probably a bad idea because, you know, you've got these guys enslaved and they're doing some great work. And now if you do this, you're going to have a whole generation of slaves that, you know, aren't going to be able to work for you. Now, when we understand the big picture, like how is that even a reason, you know, to compel somebody not to do this? But when we understand the, the dignity of human life, the loving thoughts, like logical thinking is, is impossible here because his heart is so hardened by hatred that he would even command killing. But this isn't the story here. This isn't the shining light in these verses. Who is shining the light of faithfulness in these verses? It's those faithful midwives. Those Hebrew midwives were given two names, but is imagine uh, probably a whole score of them. These sacrificial women, those that were always on call, ready to serve day or night, ready to encourage those who are in some of the most excruciating pain and the, some of the most inexpressible joy. Those women who are witnesses to new life over and over and over and to God's uh, miraculous work on a regular basis. These midwives who had a keen awareness, who was really in control. In church, we, in many ways, are like spiritual midwives, always on call, always ready to point somebody to new life, always ready to be inconvenienced day or night, ready to usher somebody into new life with Jesus Christ. And it is despite the orders from the king Pharaoh that they obey the orders of the king of the universe, so much so that even when they are called to account in verse 18, they won't back down. Some ask here, well, did, the, did they lie to Pharaoh? Well, it's, maybe they were. Maybe the Hebrew women are vigorous and, and have birth, really quick births. We don't know, but here's the thing. Even if they are withholding the truth, even if they, they're not breaking the ninth commandment not to bear false witness. Somebody comes in and wants to harm your family and asks, where are your children? You know, you don't have to worry about whether you're lying or not if you tell them that they're not here, right? They forfeited their right to the truth. And God deals well with them for their faith, for not backing down in the midst of this kind of nonsense. 
What Pharaoh fears happens. The people do multiply. They are strengthened. They grow strong and they continue to spread, which prompts his command to kill. And then who the midwives fear, he brings blessing both for them and the people of God. See, here's the thing, church, that faith blooms in the flower bed of oppression. As God takes the gospel seeds that have been spread through the preaching of the gospel by believers that fall on good soil, and as the enemy attempts to to snuff it out, to press it down, it gets pressed into the good soil of faithful hearts, and then it begins as it's watered with the word, and as as, uh, the light of Christ is shining on it, it causes that faith to blossom into something that is beautiful and healthy and reproducing and glorious to the glory of God. See, redemption, don't fear opposition. Hard times don't mean end times. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. Hard times don't mean end times. And so whereas the exodus begins in bitter bondage, a dire situation created by the sinfulness of humanity, God is still at work. We come in, they need an exodus. They need a way out. The problem was bigger than anything they could imagine. And then in the same way, we too need an exodus. Everybody needs an exodus. You did. Maybe you do today. You need an exodus out of your sin and into new life with Christ. Maybe your friends do. And you are the one who will lead them through it, taking this news of deliverance, the good news of Jesus Christ, embracing his promises that he goes with you as you make disciples, as you face anything that comes your way with faith and fear in God that leads to worship in your life and in the lives of those around you. To church, we fear God, not man, in these days and in every day. Why? Because everybody needs an exodus. And God is at work doing something that is way beyond us. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray now together.